Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Yisker sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Did Dr. Robert Franz undermine his own father and betray his memory? Or did he honor it? I'll tell you the quick story that that question is based on. It comes from a podcast from Malcolm Gladwell called Revisionist History, which I've been listening to recently. And he tells a story. Robert Franz is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And one day, a few years ago, a reporter called him and said, I hear there is something in the basement of your father's house that could be of interest to the world. Who was Robert Francis' father? Robert Francis' father was Ivan France, Dr. Ivan France Jr., an eccentric, interesting guy. He flew planes. He tinkered with radios. He played the clarinet. He wrote scientific papers longhand, sitting at the dining room table in immaculate handwriting on yellow legal pads with a pencil, an eraser, and a pencil sharpener, all set up just right. He was precise, this guy. He was punctual. He got a degree from Harvard Medical School, became independently wealthy through several businesses, and then taught for 34 years at the University of Minnesota. And this guy, Dr. Ivan France, whom you may never have heard of, nearly single-handedly changed the American diet, and not necessarily for the better. Dr. France devoted his medical life and his business life to heart disease. He was consumed with the issue of cholesterol and the science of lipids. And as Gladwell found out on a previous episode, according to Gladwell, he ruined the most precious American food to Malcolm Gladwell, the McDonald's fries, by convincing McDonald's, an unbelievably hard thing to do, to change the oil in which They fried their fries from beef tallow to vegetable oil. Dr. Ivan France was the king of vegetable oil and margarine and pushing some version, although apparently not the right version, of the Mediterranean diet. He personally financed to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars studies that would support the consumption of vegetable oils rather than animal oils, and advertisements, and he changed companies' recipes, behemoths, and he really changed the cuisine of the United States of America, but did not take sufficient account of a little tiny thing present in many vegetable oils, including margarines, called linoleic acid, which, when it builds up in the right amount, can do more damage to your heart than the consuming of animal fats. And a reporter was now calling his son because he himself had died. Why? Because he wanted his son to help him show and prove that his father was wrong by digging up some of the tapes of the original studies to show how the methodology blinded him to what was actually the case. Something in that study was problematic. What do you do in that situation when you're the son? What does it mean to be loyal to a parent 
and to memory. What is our relationship with those who have lived and then died? Do we honor them by mimicking them? By making the same life choices that they did? Do we honor them by sanitizing their life story and protecting them from critique? Or is there something higher than that? Living in the shadow or the footsteps of a parent can have crushing pressure. And it can trample the soul. And we all know innumerable examples of it. Consider one archetype, the sports-loving parents, both of them athletes in high school and college. And the image of their child, all dressed up in a Little League baseball uniform, hanging out rather forlorn in right field. He's there not because he wants to be there, because his parents want him to be there. And you see on the parents' look in the scene in your mind, you see on their face a look of pride because he is, after all, doing what they did. And you see on their face inevitable disappointment because he's just not taking to it. And he's just not that good. And how dare he not live out their fantasy, their fantasy life of who he would be. While on the kid's face, all you can see is a face that says, I'd rather be painting. And I know I'm disappointing. Or take another kind of example, a child who from adolescence into adulthood is just living a different religious life than her parents. They went to shul every week. She finds it a bore, though she's passionate about her Yiddish literature class. Or reverse it. They eschewed a traditional theology, but she believes in the divinity of the Torah and the obligation to perform every mitzvah just right. There's a heaviness when your religious life is that different from your parents. If you're too from, they think you're a fanatic. Too disconnected, and they worry that you're an apichorus and you're going to drop the baton of transmission. Maybe what is most important is that the next generation imbibed the value of Judaism itself as a whole and then apply it to their lives, in their time, in their way. It is not a rejection to resist copying. It can be its own form of kavod, of honor. There are elements of the way that we observe Sukkot that invite us to think of presence and transmission that are comforts, but not prisons. A sukkah need not be four enclosed walls. As many of you know, it can be as open as two and a half to suggest that those walls are not forced to encroach upon you. Traditionally, the schach is supposed to be more shady than sun, but with openings such that you can look through them and see the splendor of the night sky. The very symbols of the holiday that we just completed are about containing without constricting. They protect without smothering. The walls and the schach represent the kind of love that we truly need from our parents and give to our children. The kind which, when removed by parents' deaths or other loved ones' deaths, hurt so much because they were just the right amount of presence, just the right amount of care, just the right amount of pressure. Don't be me. Be you, but with 
part of me as part of you. It's the kind of love that allows you to be you without the pressure to be or even constantly defend them. Our tradition has other wisdom on this topic. When we read for Simchat Torah starting tonight and tomorrow, the very famous verse, Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe Morasha Kilat Yaakov, it is more than a ditty. It's more than a thing to say at Hagba. It's a phenomenal phrase. Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe, Moses commanded to us the Torah, Morasha, the word kind of means an inheritance, Kilat Yaakov, to the congregation of Jacob. What's the force of that word morasha? And why is the word inheritance added on to the commandment? Rashi says three words on that verse. Achaznuha, we will claim it, we'll take it, azvena, and we will not abandon it. What is the obligation of the generation that receives that which is given to it? To make a promise that we're going to take what you give us. We'll treasure it. I promise you we won't abandon it. But that's the end of what we owe you. Our children will know how dear it is to us as it was to you. But the implication, I believe, that Rashi might be saying and that what we all know in our hearts is that we're going to change it a little bit. We're going to adapt it to our moment. Once we take it from your hands You've got to release it a little bit. Isn't that what an inheritance is? The will does not say how you use what is bequeathed. All it says that it was sacred to them, and now it is yours. And you should hold on to it like it's something special. That's our task with the Torah, which we have inherited through the generations. And that's our task with memory which links us to the previous generations. And it is a harder task by far than the alternative. It's very easy to copy, even if it's not healthy. It's very easy to abandon, even if it breaks up a family legacy. It is harder and more subtle to be inspired by. It requires that you work at the task, It requires that, such as on days like this at Yisker, you remember and then you extract and you distill the choice parts and then you figure out how those nuggets of character and grand values and life themes apply to your life because yours is the life that is still going on. How it applies to your world. Not so that if your beloved parent was a lawyer, so must you be. But if your beloved parent held up honesty and a solid work ethic and a drive for education in their life, then part of kibud Abem honoring one's parents is finding a way to do your version of that in your life, contained by their memory, but not constricted. At the end of this Malcolm Gladwell episode, the story concludes. The reporter who calls up the son, Robert France, says, I'm about to call into question your, entire, your father's entire life work and to show that something he believed in in his whole career perhaps wasn't that good for people. How do you feel about that? 
Are you betraying your father? The reporter asks. And what does France say? This is really the heart of it. France says, no, I'm not betraying my father. If my father were alive, he would have done the same thing. He would rummage through his basement and he had given you the exact same computer tapes. I think my father would be very pleased because that's science, right? You have a hypothesis. You try to test it. Maybe it's dogma breaking. Maybe it's not. And if things go a different direction, then you've got to try to explain that. He was a humble man. When Gladwell speaks over that last scene, he says the following. Ivan France had a set of beliefs and opinions. He thought you'd live longer if you lowered your cholesterol. He thought that a healthy diet was one rich in vegetable oils and low in saturated fats. He believed in margarine and not butter. Those were the beliefs that drove, perhaps somewhat blindly, his research agenda. But what Robert France, his son, is talking about when he says, my father was a humble man, is something far more crucial than belief. He's talking about his father's principles, the foundation of his father's thinking. Ivan France's foundational principle was humility. So in helping to prove his father wrong, the son was actually upholding and honoring his father's memory. When Gladwell interviewed the son, Robert France, Gladwell himself had lost his own father three days before by serendipity. And he wrote this. The more I listened, the more I realized that France, France was talking about things that I had been thinking about as well. What's a child's obligation to a parent? Not by honoring our parents' beliefs. We are different people than they are, born in different eras, shaped by different forces. What we are obliged to honor in our parents is their principles, the rules by which they live their lives. And that's what I found so beautiful about Robert Francis' act. The busy professional, a doctor at one of the most prestigious medical centers in the world, he drove 90 miles each way four times to spend hours alone in a cluttered basement looking for a box of tapes that would end up proving that his father was wrong. And why did he do it? Because he understood that in pushing the science forward in defiance of ego and preconception, he was upholding the principles by which his father had lived. There is something impossibly beautiful about that act. And Gladwell concludes, in my grief, it has given me solace. Today on Yisker and on all days, when we seek solace in the face of our grief and seek presence amidst aching absence, and want to be held still, but not crushed by our loved one's legacies. Let's remember this. You want to cherish the inheritance, both the things and the ways of those whom you loved and lost. And in a way that allows you not to be you as them, but rather with them as an enduring and cherished and subtle part of you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.